Welcome to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring BYU devotionals and forums that testify of Christ's teachings, His life, ministry, and mission, and His sacred atonement. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. I appreciate, my brothers and sisters, this privilege of being with you on this very important occasion very much. I also appreciate very much this privilege of having my daughter accompany me down here. And the first thing I would like to say to you, I would like to congratulate all of you, both teachers and students, on being here. Somebody has said that a thing is usually more important for what it's a sign of than for what it is by itself. And the fact that you are here, no matter what of the, which of these capacities you may be in, is a sign that you are building, that you are attempting to build, certainly, the greatest thing in the world, which is a great human being. As I have been sitting here this morning and looking out into your faces, I thought of something that Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, that he had never met anyone who was not his superior in some particular. And I'm sure of this, that every one of you is the superior of every other person in the Church and probably in the world in some things. That is, God gives each one of us some talent or some ability or some personality trait which we may develop, whereby we are expected to excel everybody else in the world. And then through the organizations of the Church and through our occupations and in other ways we pool our good qualities and use them for the benefit and uplift of each other. I said something about like this to a group of missionaries some time ago. and. After the meeting was over, one missionary, who uh, apparently took a rather dim view of what I had said, came up and in substance said, that's a little bit ridiculous. After he had told me about his shortcomings, he said, how could I ever excel everybody else in the world? And I explained to him that at least there's one theory that says that you're supposed to excel in the place of your greatest weakness. That is, uh, Demosthenes didn't get A's in his high school speech classes. He had this speech impediment, and yet he became the greatest orator in the world. Moses and the Apostle Paul and Abraham Lincoln and every other great man, I suppose, excelled in places of, of great weakness. And I would noticed that my missionary friend was about 15 minutes late getting to the meeting, and I suggested to him that probably the Lord expected that he would excel in punctuality. But there are quite a lot of, of wonderful places where we don't have a great lot of competition, I suppose. That is, uh, isn't it interesting that we can excel in honesty, and we can excel in paying our tithing, and we can excel in morality, and we can excel in industry and faith and righteousness? Certainly the most important things there are in the world are, not, uh, are, are, are in people. The most important values are not in things. And I guess it doesn't matter very much what is behind us or what is before us. The, the important thing is what is inside of us. And someone has asked this question, how would you like to create your own mind? But isn't that just exactly what, what we all do? William James, the great Harvard psychologist, said one time, 
the mind is made up by what it feeds upon. Not this great university. You're here for a specific purpose, to feed your mind and your heart on great ideas. Somebody said the mind, like the dyer's hand, is colored by what it holds. That is, if I hold in my hands a sponge full of purple dye, my hands become purple. Now, if I hold in my mind and heart great ambitions and high expectations and great faith, then my whole personality is colored accordingly. Last November, down in New Zealand, I uh, wondered a little bit about how many billions of buckets of paint the Lord must have used to paint the oceans blue and the hills green and, and put the brilliant coloring in the flowers. And then of the other billions of buckets of perfume he must have scattered over the earth to make it more pleasant for us. And the God who painted apples red and peaches yellow and grapes purple and plums blue and cherries black, and who ex so expertly decorated the flowers, I'm sure was a, was a lover of color. But the most important color and the greatest beauty was intended for human lives. A number of years ago, Eugene Burdick and William Letter wrote a book entitled The Ugly American. Now, this is a title that represents an attitude in the minds of a great many people about America and Americans. And frequently we do present a rather unattractive picture of ourselves. Our crime waves and our increasing delinquencies and our political blunders and the other things that we do impair this national uh, elegant of the elegance of our national image. Some time ago in a divorce court, a woman told about uh, what it was like to live for 29 years uh, with a with a husband that would qualify for this title of an ugly American. He ridiculed religion, and he was domineering and unjust and immoral and set a bad example to the children and everybody else. Now there are some ugly Americans, and there are some ugly church members, and there are some ugly other kind of people, I suppose. But the spirit of this great university and the spirit of the gospel and the spirit of the church is to build beauty and, and success into human lives. God runs the most effective beauty parlor ever known in the world, and God runs the greatest university ever known in the world. And of course, as we center our lives in righteous things, our lives become successful. Somebody's pointed out to us that the sun is the center of the universe. Without the sun, the solar system would fly apart. Now, our lives ought to be, if they're to be successful, ought to be centered in, in righteousness. And, and without God, our lives and our success and our everything else, I suppose, would fly apart. Now, as a sort of a text for what I'd like to say to you this morning, I'd like to recount some of the events that took place during the last day of the Lord's life. You may remember that after that long, awful night of betrayal and trial, Jesus was brought before Pilate. Now, Pilate believed that Jesus was innocent of any wrongdoing, and he tried to free him by taking advantage of one of his privileges as Roman governor, of freeing to the people at the Passover time one of their uh, inmates, one of, their, one of his uh, uh, prisoners. And Pilate had in his custody a noted insurrectionist and murderer by the name of Barabbas. 
And he said to the people, relying, of course, upon their sense of fairness that certainly they wouldn't release a noted criminal at the expense of an innocent man, he said, Whom shall I release unto you, Barabbas or Jesus, which is called Christ? And Pilate must have been very startled to hear them say Barabbas. Then Pilate said, What shall I do with Jesus? And they said, Let him be crucified. And Pilate said, Shall I crucify your king? And they said, We have no king but Caesar. And then Pilate took water and washed his hands in the presence of the multitude and said, I am innocent of the blood of this just man. See ye to it. And, they, and the people replied, His blood be upon us and our children. And then Pilate released Barabbas to be crucified. To, to, uh, released uh, Barabbas and Jesus was delivered to the people to be crucified. Now, we might safely assume from this uh, transaction that both Pilate and the people believed that they had finally disposed of any problem that may have been presented by the life of Jesus, one by merely washing his hands before the multitude and the other by putting to death the very Son of God. But there is a peculiar relationship which exists between the life of Christ and every individual who is ever born into the world. And what these, what Pilate and the people did that night didn't alter in the least degree that relationship as it applies even to them or to us. That is, Jesus was appointed in the antimortal existence to be the Savior of the world and the Redeemer of men. And there is no other name given among men whereby we can be saved. Now, because Jesus also bore our sins, we also become a part of we, we become parties to his death. In our lives, we are asked to decide a great many questions. And, of course, we must accept the full responsibility for what our answer may be, because by our answer we determine our own eternal destiny. In his poem, The Present Crisis, James Russell Lowell said, Once to every man and nation comes a moment to decide in the strife of truth and falsehood for the good or evil side. Some great cause, God's new Messiah, offering each the bloom or blight, parts the goats upon the left hand and the sheep upon the right, and the choice goes on forever twixt the darkness and the, night, uh, and the light. And certainly the greatest question that ever is presented to any individual is the one which was raised by Pilate, in which he said, What shall I do with Jesus? Now, the Jews decided this question by saying, His blood be upon us and our children. And so it has been, and so it may be with us, because the question is still before us, and each of us must answer for himself. As the verse writer said, For Jesus is standing on trial still. You may be false to him, if you will, or you may serve him through good and ill. What will you do with Jesus? You may evade him as Pilate tried, or you may serve him whate'er betide. Vainly you'll struggle from him to hide. What will you do with Jesus? What will you do with Jesus? Neutral you cannot be, and someday your soul may be asking, What will he do with me? Now, to help us answer this question, I suppose, again, is the primary purpose of this university. This is the primary purpose of the Church. And one of the best methods, I suppose, in solving any problem is to consider all of the possible alternatives. 
And in this case, there may, it seems to me, there, there are three. That is, we, first, we may reject him and did as the, uh, uh, as the Jews did. And thereby, as the Apostle Paul says, we crucify unto ourselves the Son of God afresh. Now, for any unintelligent person, this is unthinkable. And yet much of what the Jews did, they did in ignorance. Upon the cross, Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Here's a group of people who committed the greatest crime that has ever been known in the world and didn't even know it. At the time, they didn't know what they were doing. But almost all of the sins in the world are the sins of ignorance. The one who absents himself from sacrament meeting throughout his life, or even for one Sunday, doesn't understand that that's going to have an altering effect upon his life for, forever. Or the person who, in, who doesn't get his study his lessons and who doesn't learn these important lessons that are now offered to us doesn't understand. He's doing this in ignorance. He doesn't know that this is going to change his entire lifetime. Or when someone in, uh, engages in immoral activities or the wrong kind of thoughts, it's one of these other one of these sins of ignorance. Of course, we're aware of the fact that the religion of Jesus has always suffered more from those who didn't understand than from those who opposed. It is our ignorance, even more than our sins, that stand between us and our eternal success and happiness. Now, so far as all practical purposes are concerned, I suppose that the, to sin by design is not much worse than to sin by default. The sins of omission are sometimes a lot more numerous and sometimes a lot more serious than the sins that we actually commit. And when we don't decide one thing, we ought to, a decision is made for us usually in the other way. That is, when we don't decide to get on the airplane, we automatically decide to stay off the airplane. Recently, a stranger called me on the telephone and asked if he could come and talk about one of his problems, and he and his wife, and they came in and told me about a great tragedy that recently entered their home where their only daughter had just met her death under the wheels of a speeding automobile. And he, they wanted to know, was there a God, and was there an eternal life, and was there any use for them to try to live on? So oppressive was this great calamity in their lives that they seemed as though they were smothering, that they couldn't breathe. And for two and a half hours, I tried to help them with their problem, but there wasn't very much that I could do because there wasn't any place to begin. It wasn't that they particularly disbelieved in God. Up to that point, they just hadn't thought about him one way or the other. It wasn't that they particularly disbelieved in eternal life. Up to that point, they just hadn't cared. And then death had stepped across that threshold and taken the best-loved personality there. And then all of a sudden, right now, they've got to have great faith in God and can't find it. Now, you can't just snap your fingers and get great faith in God any more than you can snap your fingers and get great musical ability. One of the great laws of success is that we must prepare for the blessings that we want before we have occasion for their actual use. I was talking about some of these things some time ago to a friend of mine, and he shrugged his shoulders and said, But, Sterling, I'm just not religious. The shrug meaning there's nothing I can do about it. I, in trying to help him, I said, Bill, I'm sure that what you say is true, that you're not religious. But have you ever thought about the circumstances that brought this situation about? How could you ever hope to be religious? You don't go to church. You don't read the scriptures. You don't pray to God. You don't think about him. You just are not interested one way or the other. 
how could you, what right do you have to be religious? I told him about the little boy. Somebody said to this little boy, who gave you that black eye? And he said, no one gave me that black eye. I had to fight for it. <laughs> now, ordinarily, we don't just get black eyes or great faith without us first having do, to do something ourselves. I told my friend about a little toy clown that I saw at Christmas time. This little plastic figure had a lead weight in the crown of his head, which could always be depended upon to bring him to an upside-down position. That is, if you'd lay him on his back, he'd flip up and stand on his head. If you'd stand him on his feet, he'd reverse the position and light on his head. Now, isn't that just exactly what we all do? We weight our own interests, and then we respond accordingly. Now, my friend was interested in athletics. He spent his Sundays and his working time and his reading time studying or thinking about or engaging in some kind of athletic event. And he told me that he could quote the batting averages of every important major league baseball player in the United States. And then he confessed to me that he could not quote one single verse from the word of the Lord. Somebody said, I never had to put religion out of my mind. I was so open-minded it fell out. My friend understood the importance of taking a vitamin pill every day. He knew the need to keep this physical body alert and vital and active, but he hadn't the slightest conception that anything must be done to keep his spirituality and his faith in good repair. Now, no one can be saved in ignorance. We must know. Again, that's the purpose of this university. Lord Bacon said, knowledge is power. What a thrilling thing to find somebody who knows his business, who knows where he's going, I mean who knows about life, who knows about this great enterprise that Jesus referred to as my father's business. Now the second alternative in, in solving this problem of, of God in our lives is that we could try to be neutral, not to take sides either way. Now, of course, that's impossible. Either God is or God isn't. There is no middle ground. It's all or nothing. We can't just go halfway. A man who doesn't openly declare his loyalty to Christ is only a spectator. Now, there is a group of people who try sitting on the fence. They say, I don't believe and I don't disbelieve. That is, they just don't want to get involved one way or another. And somebody has said that there's only one thing worse than the fool who says in his heart there is no God. And that is the one who says that he doesn't know whether there's a God or not. Now, only he who fails to seek fails to find. To, to not to believe is probably just about the same as not to care, where it doesn't make any difference. And more people are guilty, I suppose, of unbelief than of actual disbelief. That is, it's more our faint hearts than our sinful minds that stand between us and our eternal salvation. Now, no one can be saved in ignorance, but no one can be saved in indecision. You can't think of somebody acquiring salvation without making up his mind about some very important questions. I suppose that uh, the rewards of faith are so overwhelming if we just think about it. I don't mean I suppose. Uh, I mean, the, the, nothing could be more unprofitable, I suppose, than this damaging neutrality. That is, if a man should err in believing the gospel of Jesus Christ to be true, he could not possibly be the loser by the mistake. But how irreparable is his loss who should err in supposing the gospel of Jesus Christ to be false? Now, some have tried to dispose of this question of what will I do with Jesus by saying that he's just a great teacher. 
Well, that isn't a very good question. That isn't a very good substitute for finding the truth. Suppose that all the atheists and the idlers and the sinners and those who half believe that God is dead, supposing that they find out sometime that they are wrong, how are they going to repair this mistake? Someone said, suppose there is a Christ, but that I should be Christless. Suppose there is a cleansing, but that I should remain unclean. Suppose there is a Heavenly Father's love, but that I should remain an alien. Suppose there is a heaven, but that I should be cast down to hell. And someone has said that he who is indifferent to his friend is ungrateful to his friend, but he who is indifferent to his Savior is unmerciful unto himself. Now, no one can be saved in ignorance, and no one can be saved in indecision, and no one certainly can be saved in indifference. Now, the third alternative that in answering this question is that we might accept him. That is, we might live his precepts. The greatest opportunity of our lives is that we go all the way in serving him and keeping his commandments. We, I, I talked to a missionary or a group of missionaries some time ago, and or I heard a missionary uh, say to one of his contacts that missionaries, uh, or I heard him preaching some false doctrine, he said missionaries don't get paid. He said we work for nothing. After the contact had gone, I said to him, that's the most ridiculous idea I've ever heard of in my life. Whoever told you, how did you ever figure it out that missionaries don't get paid? I thought the Lord said that if you labor all your days and bring one soul into me, how great your reward's going to be. I asked him if he remembered what the Lord said about the worth of a soul being greater than the wealth of all of the earth, and he did. And I asked him if he knew what the earth was worth, and he didn't. And I had a clipping out of a newspaper that uh, marked out one section of the United States and said its assessed valuation was over a trillion dollars. Now, if that's the worth of a soul, in this mission that I was in uh, last year, they brought an average of 12 converts per missionary into the mission field. That's one a month. And I got him a piece of paper and had him figure this out, that if he worked for 30 days at 10 hours a day, that'd be 300 hours to save a trillion-dollar soul. I had him make this division, and uh, I don't know whether his arithmetic was right or not, but he figured he was getting $3,333,000,000 per hour. I said to him, how much did you get, how much is the most that anybody ever paid you when you were at home? And he said, 75 cents. I said, all right, now, would you try to explain to me what you say when you say we don't get paid for what we do in the church? I mean, this righteousness, this, this godliness, that it isn't profitable. What, what, what did the Lord mean when he said about somebody who did the thing that you're talking about or we're here today for, when the Lord said, then all that my father hath shall be given unto him? Now, God's a very wealthy personage. We all like to inherit from a wealthy parent. Now, you think of something that's more exciting than to inherit from God. Or what do we mean when we talk about a fullness of the, of the glory of God? Now, we can accept, we can accept the Lord. We can do the thing that, that we teach ourselves to do. Now, we, we have all of the information that other people have had, but in addition to that, we have the judgment of time shining upon the life of Christ. We have the testimony of ancient as well as modern prophets. In addition, we have a great flood of new knowledge which has come into the world in our own day. Some time ago, Lowell Thomas, the great radio commentator and broadcaster, was telling a group of people about the vast sums of money that people spend in the United States and sending their messages out across the major radio networks. 
And somebody asked Mr. Thomas what was the greatest message that he could cons that that he had ever had a part in broadcasting. Or they said what was the greatest message that he could conceive as being broadcast to the people of the world. And Mr. Thomas said the greatest message that he could conceive would be that God had again spoken to his people upon the earth. Now God has not only spoken to us upon the earth, but he came in person. In the early spring of 1820, God the Father and his Son Jesus Christ reappeared upon this earth to reestablish in the minds of men a belief in the God of Genesis and the God of Calvary and the God of the latter days. In talking about this vision, he said this, And I saw two personages, whose brightness and glory defy all description, standing above me in the air. One of them spake unto me, calling me by name, and said, pointing to the other, This is my beloved Son. Hear him. Now, maybe you can think of something more exciting and more thrilling than that, but I don't know just what it would be. Now, we have these great volumes of new scripture outlining in every detail the simple principles of the gospel. Some time ago, I was over in Colorado dedicating a meeting house, and after the, the session was over, they served us lunch, and we lined up to get our trays, and right ahead of me was a man who told me that he was just had an appointment to to be baptized. And I said to him, I'd like to hear about it. And as we ate our lunch, he was telling me that for 25 years he had occupied a, a pulpit in the congregational church. But he said he'd always been disturbed that uh, each minister in the, in the church taught some different doctrine according to his own idea. And then they attended a ministerial convention in Chicago where they were, uh, where he, and he and the moderator had breakfast one morning, and they were talking about this, and then they made a survey among those that were present to find out what they believed. And he found a greater discord in belief even than, they, than, they had, than he had imagined. Then, some, then he handed in his resignation as a minister of this church, and a couple of weeks later some young missionaries knocked on his door and said they had a message. And, and they came in and talked to him about it, and one of the things he said that always disturbed him was that there wasn't anybody to say, Thus saith the Lord. And so he brought up some of these doctrines, and what about the personality of God? And they opened the scripture, Thus saith the Lord. What about infant baptism? Thus saith the Lord. We have authoritative information on every point of, of doctrine. Now, in addition to that, we have witnesses that, uh, who have been raised up by the Lord to let us understand something about this. That is, in the front part of the Book of Mormon, eleven men have signed their names to a testimony, just one sentence of which I'd like to read to you. They say, And we declare with words of soberness that an angel of God came down from heaven and brought and laid before our eyes that we beheld and saw the plates and the engravings thereon. And we know that it is by the grace of God the Father and His Son Jesus Christ that we beheld, and we bear record that these things are true. Now, I think anybody who understood that situation, there isn't anybody in the world who would dare to disbelieve that kind of testimony. That kind of testimony will hold in any court of law, either human or divine. Some time ago in one of the great eastern cities of this country, I attended a meeting of another denomination, of one of the sectarian denominations, and where one of the very famous ministers of the world was in the pulpit. And after the meeting was over, I bought one of his books, and I read it very carefully on the train coming home. And three weeks later, I was again in this city, and again I listened to this man. And after the their large group of people lined up to shake his hand afterward, and I got on the end of the line. and. 
After the others had gone, I said to him, Dr. So-and-so, I'm Sterling Sill from Salt Lake City, and I enjoyed what you said, and I read your book, and I was here three weeks ago, and but there's some things in your book that I'm unable to understand, and I'd appreciate if you had a few minutes if you'd discuss them with me, and he said, I'd be very glad to. I said, in your book, you have some statements like this. These, in one place, you say, send your roots down into God. I can't understand that. In another place, you say, immerse yourself in God. I can't understand that. In another place, you say, fill your mind with God. I can't understand that. And I'd appreciate if you'd give me your ideas of, about what God is. And he said about what Mr. Thomas said, he said, uh, and f first he said, frankly, I don't know what God is, and I don't know of anybody who does know what God is. He said, if someone could come into the world and tell us what God is, that would be the greatest information that could ever come into the world. And I said, well, what is your interpretation of the passages that say that God created man in his own image? And he said, well, there's one thing of which I'm reasonably certain, and that is that God is not an anthropomorphic God. That is, he's not the God in whose image man was created. Now, this man doesn't know about God, and yet Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. I suppose that would make salvation impossible. But this man doesn't understand eternal marriage, and he doesn't understand salvation for the dead, and he doesn't understand the purpose of life, and he doesn't understand the resurrection from the dead, and he doesn't understand the use of authority in the Church. And he doesn't understand very much about eternal progression. Here one of the great ministers of the world, and yet he doesn't understand these most simple principles of the gospel of Christ. And when I returned home, I reread this 76th section of the Doctrine and Covenants. In verse 22, it says, and now, and after this great vision, it said, and now after the many testimonies that have been given of him, this is the testimony last of all that we give of him that he lives, for we saw him, even on the right hand of God. And we heard the voice bearing record that he is the only begotten of the Father, that by him and through him and of him the worlds are and were created, and the inhabitants thereof are begotten sons and daughters unto God. Then I got down on my knees and thanked my Heavenly Father that my little grandchildren can know more about God and the purpose of life and how to, what they should do to be successful in life than this great doctor of divinity in all of his, his wisdom and understanding. And I suppose that—and uh, I don't mean I suppose, but certainly there isn't any greater thing in the world than we can understand something about the purpose of our own lives and what brings us here and what is to be accomplished and, and how we should go about it to be successful. And again, I'd like to congratulate all of you, my brothers and sisters, in being in this great university and doing the things that you're doing. Your lives will go out to influence many other people. Someone has said that one man can, if he will, change the morale of a whole community. And may the Lord's blessings be upon all of you who come here to teach and to learn, is my prayer, which I ask in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to the Jesus Christ, Our Savior and Redeemer podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on overcoming adversity by study and by faith. Come follow me, Love and Marriage, and the Prophet Joseph Smith. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.